I heard this story once about a biologist that was, uh, was doing some research and exploring the Alps and, and, and doing some, um, some research there about uh, some of the biological environments. And uh, he came upon a small village uh, high up in the Alps, and his timing couldn't have been more perfect uh, because the villagers for the last weeks were, were getting sick, and even some of them were dying, and no one could figure out why this was happening. As much as they could try to uh, remain well, eat well, um, do their rituals, and, and attempt to, to better their lives on their own, they continued to get sick. And this has gone on for, for weeks now. Uh, the biologist uh, came and met with all of the people, Everyone seemed to be suffering from, the sim from similar illnesses. Uh, the biologists went exploring, as good biologists would, uh, to seek out, to see what the issue was. See, there was a stream that ran through the village, and he followed that stream up, and near the fountainhead of that stream, uh, he found a giant brown bear. Uh, this giant brown bear had died and was laying directly in the stream. You see, the stream was the source for all the people's drinking water. And the biologist removed, removed the decaying bear, freeing the stream of the pollutants and that uh, henceforth were causing the villagers' illnesses. In the same way that the decaying bear polluted the water of that village, causing all people to get sick and even for some to die, we too, uh, as humanity, have been polluted. We've been polluted by sin. Um, according to professor and theologian Herman Bovink, sin is a turning away from God and a turning to self, a condition described in the scriptures uh, as the old self, the flesh, the natural person, uh, the natural man. Uh, we see the source, therefore, of our sin, uh, the, the cause of sin, the, um, the fountainhead, if you will, of sin in our passage this morning in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Genesis 3. Uh, if you are looking at the uh, black hardcover Bibles, that's going to be on page 2. Uh, you can turn there now. Uh, as we will uh, look at our doctrine uh, and confessional statement on the fall this morning, the fall. So turn with me now to this book that we love, Genesis chapter 3. This is the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked." And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Pray with me. Father, we come this morning bringing you our worship, our praise, our adoration. For you alone are worthy. Father, we come this morning also seeking to know and love you more. Father, give us more faith in you, in your word, and your presence with us today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, if you are just joining us for the first time this summer, we are going through a series um, called Foundations, going through our doctrinal and confessional statement. Uh, this week we've come to the doctrine of the fall. Um, not the season, but the event, the event that we see here and we just read in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to read for you our doctrinal confessional statement on the fall. You'll see it behind me on the screen. It says this, We believe that Adam, made in the image of God, distorted that image and forfeited his own blessedness for himself and all of his progeny by falling into sin through Satan's temptation. As a result, all human beings are alienated from God, corrupted in every aspect of their being, physically, mentally, volitionally, emotionally, and spiritually, and condemned finally and irrevocably to death apart from God's own gracious intervention. The supreme need of all human beings is to be reconciled to the, to the God under whose just and holy wrath we stand. 
The only hope of all human beings is the undeserved love of this same God, who alone can rescue us and restore us to himself. It doesn't take much convincing, uh, I think, for anyone, uh, whether that be someone that you meet on the streets, someone that you work with, a family member, um, to convince them that something has gone wrong. Something is wrong in this world. We, we see it constantly. I mean, if you turn on the news for, for five seconds, you will see the evil that exists um, in humanity. Um, humanity isn't, if you will, like the best versions of themselves. Uh, we, we are fallen. There is evil around us. We see this in prejudice. We see this in racism. We see this in, in corruption. We see this all over the place. Uh, we see the effects and feel the effects of sin. But it's, e it's, it's easy for us, I believe, um, to look at corruption and sin um, out there, right? It's like we don't have to look far into the world. Uh, you know, we don't have to look across the seas to see corruption. We can look um, in, in the United States. We can look uh, in the Northeast. We can look in Pennsylvania. We can look in Harrisburg. Yet even in our backyards, we can see the effects of sin. But I would challenge you this morning to not just see sin as something that is out there, uh, corruption that is something that is out there, but see that sin affects every part of you and me. See that sin has corrupted us completely. In the early 20th century, um, the Times of a British newspaper was running a series of questions that they would pose to their reading audience um, and for them to write in and answer and kind of, uh, kind of this Q&A, if you will. One particular question was raised uh, by the newspaper during a time of particular unrest in Britain. The question was, what is wrong with the world today? The famous author, philosopher, and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote with the following answer, Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. It would be easy for us to, to look at what is wrong with the world as an outside exterior problem. When in reality, we need to look internally at the problem. We need to see both, to be honest theologically and personally, that as Chesterton asserts, we are the problem. Sin is the issue, and we are complicit. For those who have eyes to see and those who have ears to hear this morning, let them hear and see what the Word of God says about sin. The narrative of the fall in Genesis 3 is um, foundational to our understanding of Scripture, I would say, as a whole, but also to our understanding uh, of ourselves and to who God is. There have been, throughout history, historical attempts to lessen the impact of the fall and the, the, the implications of what sin has on humanity. Um, Pelagius was one of those who would say that the image of God was, was merely uh, bruised, slightly damaged, um, as opposed to being broken 
at the fall, that, that sin really is something that we just, we'd have a choice to do or not do, but, but uh, you know, it really doesn't affect the entirety of us. Um, this, this type of minimalization of the impact of sin uh, really goes to the heart of the gospel and our need for the gospel to be the saving work that saves us. You diminish the impact of the fall, and then you diminish the impact of Christ. R.C. Sproul once said that the, the darker the backdrop of our sin and seeing our sin, the brighter the diamond is uh, of what Christ has done. So for us to fully see and understand, we must begin to understand here that the fall is fundamentally uh, an, a, a place where we have to see the true darkness and depravity of humanity. This is the, the fountainhead, if you will, and if we understand the impact, the full and complete impact of the fall and, the, and what it has on humanity, how much more beautiful is what Christ has done on our behalf? So this morning, uh, there are three points I would love for us to cover uh, in the implications of the fall of humanity. The first being the brokenness between the created and the creator. The second being brokenness between the created order itself. And third, the hope for reconciliation in Christ. Our first point, the brokenness between the created and the creator. So our doctrinal confessional statement says, We believe that Adam, made in the image of God, distorted that image and forfeited his original blessedness for himself and all of his progeny. By falling into sin through Satan's temptation, as a result, all human beings are alienated from God. Humanity doesn't lose the image of God, the Imago Dei. We don't, we don't lose the image of God in our, uh, as we talked about last week, the value that is placed on us because we are made in God's image. It is not lost, but it is, it is corrupted. It is uh, both physically and spiritually damaged in this uh, event of the fall. It is marred, if you will, by the stain of sin. It results, therefore, in the brokenness of fellowship between God and his created. In verse 8 of Genesis 3, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife. And, and look at what happens. They, they hear the Lord. Uh, they hear the Lord. And what do they do? They hid themselves. They hid themselves from the presence of God amongst the trees in the garden. And we see here the response, the broken relationship. I, as, as a father, like when my children have done something wrong, um, I do not want them to hide from me because of their shame and fear. But this is what sin does. It causes us to run and hide from the very one who can bring any kind of hope and reconciliation and love into the brokenness of what we've done. Here we see the broken fellowship between God and man because of sin. What we also see here is we see God actually entering into this. That God comes into the garden. 
He comes to pursue his created beings. He comes in a way that is, that is not coming with condemnation. He doesn't go scorched earth and Eden just disappears. They heard God coming, yet they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This broken relationship, this broken fellowship, is, uh, it is so indicative of how we as human beings respond to God. It's indicative of, of the way that, that we sometimes view God. When we don't understand what Christ has done through his death, burial, and resurrection, our response to God is to just completely remove ourselves from him, to hide hide because of our shame, hide because of our fear. We see who we are, and we're, we're uncomfortable with who we are when it comes to a holy God. Uh, in, in many ways, um, we, we even try to erase the idea of God. It would, it would be easier for us if, if maybe God didn't play as big of a picture. Maybe he wasn't the sovereign creator of the universe. Maybe because uh, of the way that we see God, uh, we see in, in culture the moralistic, therapeutic, deistic view of God, where God is out there, and when we need his help, we'll come to him. We'll, we'll, we'll try to, to get some kind of therapy for our problem. We do not see him as the personal God who comes and walks into the garden. And when we do see God, when we see who he is, and we see ourselves, we would run from him. This broken fellowship exists. Uh, it also breaks the, the actual relationship that we, we had with God. It goes on to say in verse 11 of chapter 3, look with me. He says, he said, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The relationship between God and man, not only the fellowship, but the relationship goes from one of, of enjoyment of one of receiving, of one of worship, to one of blame shifting. The relationship is now broken between God and man. We see this because, because as soon as, as God asks, have you done this? Have you eaten from the tree? Adam goes, well, it's her fault. You gave her to me. I mean, he, he not only blames the woman, but he now blames God for his problems for what he has done, the, the sins in which he is, is guilty for, he now blames on God. You've given me this woman. She caused me to do this. I mean, I just was standing here. She's talking to some animal. She hands me some food. What do you want me to do? I'm a guy. I'm going to eat it. We see later in Scripture in Romans 1 that, that this leads to us we, we, we blame God, we blame each other, 
We blame God for our situation to the point where we become haters of God, as Romans 1 says. Humanity is a hater of God. We, we've become rebels against God. Jesus himself said in the Gospels that the, that the world has hated him and it will hate us too. This total rejection of God here in this moment in time and space of Genesis chapter 3 is a cognizant, intentional, and willing act of disobedience. Creation sinned against God, therefore breaking fellowship and breaking relationship with him. And creation has been sinning, therefore, against God, and now as we see in the blame shifting against each other. So point two, the brokenness within the created order. Our doctrinal confessional statement says this, corrupted in every aspect of their being, for example, physically, mentally, volitionally, emotionally, and spiritually, and condemned finally and irrevocably to death apart from God's own gracious intervention. We are corrupted. We are corrupted um, in the ways in which we even think about life, in the ways that we um, start thinking about what is good for us. And this really begins, we can go back to, to verse 1 of chapter 3 and, and into to, to verse 6 where it says that the the serpent, being more crafty than any other beast, um, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? So what we see here in in, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 is a questioning of God's words. A questioning of God's words. Shall, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Did he really say that? Now, if we, if we see the created order, like we talked about last week, where God has his word, he's given it to man, man leads his wife, and together they subdue and have dominion over creation, we would not have this problem if that order was followed. But what happens here, a woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but not listening to God's word, and implying her own interpretation of God's word, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit in the garden that is in the midst of the garden. And she adds this, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She is, like, we as as humanity are a really good legalist. Like, we want to create rules so so that we don't break the other rules. Like, if if it was, you know, for instance, for my kids, right, don't don't eat the cookies in the cookie jar, right? Not only do we have a cookie jar, but let's just say, let's go with it, all right? Don't eat the cookies in the cookie jar. And my oldest would do this. He would go, don't go into the kitchen. Don't eat the cookies in the cookie jar is the, is the, is the rule, it's the law. But we would say, don't even go into the kitchen. Tell you what, don't even go downstairs. We keep adding layers and layers to the law, um, and what that does is it affects our view of God and it affects what we believe about God because his word has changed. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw, and pay attention here, verse 6, and if you, you highlight or underline, underline this, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Uh, Herman Bovink, the um, 
professor and theologian said this, the first sin with humans, as was with the angels, was an act, a free conscience act, not a feeling or impression or awareness, but an act. One act that consists of the following. One, Eve allows the serpent to manipulate her consciousness, permits doubt to penetrate her consciousness, and allows herself to be charmed by the delusion that she will become something other. Just as she feels she is able to become something other because her goodness is mutable, it is changeable. Okay, so she wants she wants to uh, this has a desire to be something other. She doesn't feel like she is good enough. She doesn't feel like what she has is sufficient enough. So she wants to be something other, even though she's made in the image of God. She wants to be like God, even though she is made in the image of God. Number two, through pride, she is led to do this. Deny the consequence of sin. You will not die. Deny sin itself. Your eyes will be opened. And shift the sin to God himself. God himself will set you free. You shall become as God. Infected by pride, now her will is inclined. She turns to the tree and sees three things. She sees that it is Good for food, the lust of the flesh, a delight to the eyes, a lust of the eyes, and desirable for making one wise, the pride of life. Eve commits sin. This conscious act of sin. And those three things, friends, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The pride of life being the thing that I think underlies and underscores all of our sin. Uh, Augustine said that pride is pregnant with every type of sin. It is because of pride, our desire to be something other, something more, have more, be more, do more, that leads us to sin, to cause us to rebel against what God has established for us that is good is right to, to, to sin against each other in the ways in which would make ourselves look better, appear better than someone else, have more than someone else. Pride is the chief sin that takes down humanity. It tears us down. It prevents a relationship between God and us, and it breaks our relationships with each other. This brokenness, this sin, the impact of a prideful sin affects every faculty of humanity. Just to go through a list of the ways in which sin impacts you and your person and your body. Listen to this. One, it impacts the soul, spirit, and heart. It does not reside in the realm of God. Number two, it affects the mind and understanding. It is broken Ephesians 4 says that they are darkened in their, understanding, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. It, it corrupts our will. In Romans 8, 7, it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Number four, it affects in our, our feelings. Our feelings are fully corrupted by sin. Isaiah 57, 30 says, but the, wicked, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. 
The body itself is corrupted. Romans 6, 6 says the body is enslaved to sin. And, and Romans 7, 24, the body is subject to death. The eyes cannot see, Matthew 5, 29. The ears do not hear, Deuteronomy 29, 4. The hands are slow and weak, Isaiah 35, 3. The feet are unstable, Psalm 38, 17. The neck is hardened and turned away from God, Deuteronomy 10, 16. The tongue is an instrument of all sorts of evil, injustice, and deceit, Job 27 and Psalm 109. The mouth speaks arrogantly, Romans 3, 17. The nose indicates pride, Psalm 10. The knees are weak and they show a lack of spiritual vitality, Hebrews 12. 12, 12. This is why Paul can say in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Our bodies are fully in every faculty and sense corrupted by sin. To hold on to any hope that we are able to uh, take ourselves out of the pit, to take ourselves out of the grave, the, the Bible refers to the effects of our sin as death. Death. Who, who, being a dead man, can raise himself from the dead? Where is our hope? Where is our hope at all if it is not found in Christ? We cannot be good enough. We cannot try hard enough. We cannot rally in the ninth inning to try to, to beat the corruption of sin and death that exists in our faculties. We are fully and completely helpless to the point of death. We have no hope if not apart from Christ. So I'll finish with our third point. Amidst the brokenness of humanity, amidst the brokenness, we have hope. Our doctrinal confessional statement says this, the supreme need of all human beings is to be reconciled to the God under whose just and holy wrath we stand. The only hope of all human beings is the undeserved love of this same God who alone can rescue us and restore us to himself. Even in the narrative of the fall, we see hope. There's something called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel that we see here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Look with me at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, highlight, underline this one. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel this is a picture of what Christ will do on the cross he will crush the head of the serpent although Christ's body will die he will be resurrected from the dead because of the power and the spirit of God. Because he is God. He is sinless. He has no sin to be found in him. And therefore the condemnation of sin cannot corrupt the incorruptible. He beats sin and he beats death on our behalf. This is the hope that we have. Even in the fall, we see the hope that is found in the gospel. And we see the way in which God comes to his covenant people he comes to his people 
in verse 20 and 21. I want you to, to, to see this. Verse 20, And man called his wife's name Eve because she was with, she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. In the beginning, God sacrifices something. God sacrifices an animal and puts the goodness, if you will, the righteousness, the goodness of someone else upon humanity that is not theirs. In the same way, when, we're, when Christ saves us, he gives us this exchange. He takes our sinfulness away and puts on his own righteousness upon us. We are covered in the blood of Christ. We are given his righteousness. We are given his holiness that we might stand before God, that we may not be naked and afraid and ashamed because we have Christ's righteousness. We see this is the God that we worship, that even in our rebellion, he clothes us. He gives us that which we do not deserve. Just as it was necessary for someone in our initial um, story about the fountainhead and the bear and the corruptedness, just as it was necessary for someone from the outside to come and see the situation in the mountain village and act in a way that would remove the curse from them, also we see what Christ has done. He has removed the curse from us. He comes from heaven, comes into this world that he created, and he didn't just remove the curse from his people, but he took the curse on himself. He took on their sickness. He took on their sin. And he gave his people his righteousness, the cure himself. This is the gospel. Our sin corrupts us fully and completely, and it kills us. We are hopeless without God intervening and acting on our behalf. No goodness, no righteousness, no, no matter where you stand in, in, in cultural morality can save you from the wrath that is to come. It is only through Christ, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, beating sin and beating death. That is our only hope. That is the only hope that we have. And praise be to God that Christ has accomplished for us our salvation on our behalf because he is good. He has been good from the beginning and he will be good forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. You, Father, are good. You are good to your people. Lord, there is corruption that surrounds us. God, we didn't even get into so much of the sin that we see in our world today. Not only externally, but internally. God, we confess this morning our need for you, our need for the gospel, our need to be reminded daily of the gospel, moment by moment of the gospel, and the ways that you come to redeem and restore your people. Lord, we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. God, you have saved and redeemed your people by your goodness and your grace, and to God, for, to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.